Uh, welcome back. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here coming to you on a Tuesday afternoon in Boulder, Colorado. I am on the phone today with Andrew Hood. I don't even, Andy, I don't even know what day it is where you are. You are in Australia for the Tour Down Under. I think it's next Thursday where you are. Uh, what, 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 what day and time does it read on your computer right now? I think it's actually February down here already. Okay. I mean, I have no, I, I have no idea what time it is either. No, it is. Uh, it's Thursday morning. You know, it's already. Uh, is it Thursday morning or is it Wednesday? It's Wednesday morning. Wednesday Sorry. morning. You know, it's like. <laughs> it's uh, you know, the, the time difference is weird, and, and even where we are here in Adelaide, they have like a half an hour time difference between Melbourne, which is uh, you know, it's pretty close to here. It's like from Denver to maybe Kansas City. But they, you know, instead of having an hour time difference, they have a half an hour time difference. So it's very confusing down under. But it's a great scene here at the two down under. It's one of the, you know, it's really a, it's really one of the funnest races to come to. Uh, everyone's kind of pretty relaxed and chilled out, and you got that Aussie vibe, and you know, a lot of fans are out here. And 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 the, and the positive thing, of course, is the weather's really improved. There's been some rain showers, so a lot of that drama that was surrounding the bushfires is kind of toned down. So the focus is on bike racing, and everyone's pretty stoked about that. Um, have you experienced any um, fascinating flora or fauna yet? Did anyone meet you at the airport with a baby? kangaroo or some type of cute marsupial and then take your photo i know that that is always a favorite with the tour down under all the riders the pictures of the baby kangaroos did they, did they do that for the press as well this year andy uh they had a little event the other day to, to kind of kickstart the the race they they bring out the the koalas and the joeys and and uh some snakes and uh you know everything's different down here it's what it's kind of interesting coming down here the light is different the feel of the air is different all the animals are very different so uh it's always an adventure i think that the, the peloton really enjoys coming down here and I, I know i think tomorrow's stage they bring out the little joeys again and you know they're pretty funny little things man they just like to get into that little pouch there and just hang out. So they're pretty cool. Well, I expect to see pictures of you, Andrew Hood, with a baby kangaroo, a Joey, on your Instagram or maybe on the official Vela News Instagram. I think that uh, listeners should tune in to see uh, Andy with the Joey. Well, hey, we got to get right into it. World Tour Racing has begun. We are recording this on Tuesday. We are one stage into the Tour Down Under. Sam Bennett um, got the proverbial monkey off his back, won the opening stage, for his first race with Dakunit Quickstep. Well, I guess first World Tour race with Dakunit Quickstep. Uh, Caleb Ewan won the Criterium to open this thing. Um, take us into the race, Hoodie. What are the talking points that you have from your experience at uh, Tour Down Under up to this point? Yeah, yesterday everybody was pretty pretty excited to get, get racing started. You know, it, it, this, this race has really come, 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 come a long way in the last uh, really 10 years. I mean, it used to be kind of this almost uh, an Aussie party down here. The, it didn't seem like the, the race wasn't taking that seriously by really the riders. I mean, you know, of course, it's a race. They're going to take it seriously. But, you know, it, it, once it kind of got world tour status about 10 years ago, it really started to see an evolution in the race. And so in yesterday's stage, kind of a relatively straightforward um, circuit course came down to a mass sprint. Joey Roscoff was off the front. You know, he kind of got took a little stab for the climber's jersey, just kind of, you know, it's what every every team comes here. Even if they're not going to win a stage, they're going to try to get something out of these races. Um, and I was just making the rounds yesterday in the pits, and that was the vibe. It's like no one's here on vacation. It's not some sort of spring training camp. Everyone's here to race. They want to get results. World Tour points are on the line. This is a this, this the, the importance of the race has increased. And yesterday, I mean, you saw it. You had all the teams just really working hard in that last 20k to set that sprint up. And and Dakuna Quickstep, you know, they they can 
they have that ability to where they can just slot these guys in and still deliver the results. I mean, this is the first big race with Sam Bennett, you know, after his kind of a, you know, his controversial exit from Bora. There was a lot of hype around that. He kind of had to uh, go to arbitration to get out of his contract with that team, come into the sooner quick step. A lot of pressure on him to step in and fill the shoes of Viviani and Gavidia's left. So he's got their big sprinter now. And he was very excited to win yesterday because he, you know, he, what he said the other day, he goes, I don't want to be the first quick step rider to come to the Tour Down Under and not win a stage. Yeah, you said he was, look, tears at the finish line. I mean, he was very emotional when he crossed the line. And, you know, I didn't expect it after Caleb Ewan just blew everyone away in that opening criterion. I expected him to be the fastest man in that sprint. So to see Sam Bennett win it, in his new team colors, that was pretty cool. And then to hear that it really meant something to him. Like you said, this isn't just a season opener race. This, you know, there's there's a lot at stake right now, uh, I thought was pretty cool as well. Yeah, I mean, especially for the sprinters, it's all about the mojo and the momentum and building that confidence. You know, you get a win under the legs at every race. It's pretty important at these uh, opening races. You know, they'll race here, then they'll go to the UAE Tour. Uh, before they get back to Europe, a lot of these guys are kind of on this kind of Australian Middle East program for the next uh, several weeks. And so it's a chance for the sprint trains to feel each other out. There's usually some new riders coming into these teams. I think yesterday, Quick Steps said they had four new riders out of the seven starters here. Every sprinter we talked to, from Viviani to Caleb Ewan to Philipson to Bennett, they're all saying that they want to get a win here. And, and, and all expressing the same thing about how important it is for the confidence and for the momentum. You get that win now, like quick step. You know They've been delivering 60-plus wins the last three years in a row across the whole team. So every team wants to get something out of these races. And they were very excited. It's going to be a big battle for the, for the sprints. And the sprinters these days, as we know, they don't get as many chances as they used to. You know, the Grand Tours are getting stacked up with all these hilly stages. So their sprint opportunities are, are diminished just across the calendar in general. So when they do have a sprint stage, the teams are all gunning for it and the riders want those wins. You know, I was really excited before the men's race got started to see the finale of the women's race and to see American Ruth Winder take the overall. Uh, Ruth, you know, she has she won the U.S. National Championship this past year. She's been a rider who's been on our uh, radar for a long time and sort of this rider of the future of American uh, women's cycling. And to see her be so strong this early in the season, I think, was another high point for this race. Sounds like she's going to be doing some of the Ardennes races, some of the other harder one days coming into the season. But, you know, starting off with a big win like this, I got to imagine that gives Ruth a big jolt of confidence as well. Hoodie, you were there for some of her press conferences. What did old Ruth have to say? Yeah, they were pretty stoked at the finish line the other day when they wrapped up the overall. Because the final stage, because the previous stage she had um, into Sterling, kind of this kind of uphill, not really a hilltop finale, but it's an uphill sprint. And she bested uh, Amanda Spratt, the three-time defending champion kind of beat the Aussies on the home roads. So it was a, it was a big win for her just to win that stage and had just enough going into that final stage and down here in downtown crit uh, here in Adelaide. But with time bonuses on the road, it was far from a done deal. And sure enough, Mitchell and Scott and Sunweb were just unloading and, and trying to knock Trek Segafredo off their balance a little bit and see if they could you know take away that leader's jersey. But they really stepped up and played a pretty smart tactic there in the, in the final stage they lost a uh, two seconds in the first bonus and then uh the second one she was there and kind of limited her losses and then they let a breakaway go up the road and they kind of neutralized 
those bonuses. But even then, the breakaway riders were a threat on GC. So there was a lot going on in that last couple uh, circuit stage there. A lot more than perhaps you'd expect uh, for a little kind of final day crit. Uh, but she was ecstatic coming across the line. She said that, you know, this was one of her most important wins. And it was pretty effusive thinking her teammates and the job they did for her. So it's a huge boost of confidence for that team. And, you know, kind of demonstrates really how more integrated some of these teams are getting between the men and the women's squads under the same banner. You know, Czech Segafredo, all the men's were there at the finish line watching the race, celebrating with their with their teammates across uh, – on the women's side, and you're seeing as more of these World Tour teams have kind of both men's and women's teams, it's pretty cool to see kind of as an integration between both sides of those programs. Yeah, that's a big step up for Trek Sticker for the women, too. They came onto the scene last year, and I think we had all hoped for them to be the, the big team to challenge Bulls Dolmans at the Women's World Tour. And they did in some races. They won a stage of Tour Down Under with Paternoster, and they won some other big one days throughout the year, but it didn't really have the level of like week in, week out victory that I would have hoped to really, you know, challenge Bulls and Canyon SRAM. And and I think starting off with a big win like this asserts themselves that they're going to have a big 2020. Um, Last storyline I wanted to ping you on, Hoodie, you know, you uh, were there at the buses. Rowan Dennis made his debut with Team Ineos. He looked great in this new kit. Um, Rowan Dennis has (laughs) given several interviews in the offseason about why he stepped off his bike, stage 13 of the Tour de France, mysteriously and just quit. Um, he's talked about it. Well, he's talked around it. He hasn't yet revealed the exact reason why he got off his bike. And I've had some seen some debate online with people. Well, I kind of leave him alone. You know, he's made his piece. He's commented on this and talked about how difficult it was and how, you know, there were mental, emotional factors at play. But we actually have not gotten the very specific reason why it was. Uh, you were at the bus the other day. He got off and talked about it, but it sounds like he's still this kind of talking around it and not saying specifically this was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back and made me so upset I quit the Tour de France. What did old Rowan have to say? Yeah, I mean, the reason why everyone's dancing around this is because it's still an arbitration. There's still some legal issues surrounding his contract uh, between Byron Mega and Rowan Dennis. So that's one reason why everyone's kind of tiptoeing around it. We were, I went to talk to uh, the new Byron McLaren boss, Rod Ellingworth. Uh, it just kind of got his take on it. You know, what's going on? He goes, well, I really can't say too much about it. It's still kind of all wrapped up with our lawyers. And uh, and that's kind of, uh, I think, why we're seeing you know people being reticent right now about really saying what really went down. Because Rowan was telling us the other day, oh, you know, I was becoming this person I didn't want to become. And the best thing for do for me to do was to leave the race, and uh, to you know to just make a clean break and and start afresh. But they were like going, you know, why leave on that day? You know, why don't you just ride the tour out, do the right thing, and maybe you know just at least get to Paris before you pull the plug. But he said it kind of reached this breaking point, and that he was just so miserable and unhappy that you know he could not continue under those circumstances. You know what exactly was going on. You know, we're still trying to get the full story. There's kind of a lot of speculation about his bike, about his skin suit. He was dancing around that. Maybe some bad dynamics on the team and he wouldn't, you know. So he was – this latest little kind of round, as he was saying, this was all this mental anguish that he had to, you know, clean his soul from. But having said that, he's pretty happy about where he's landed on Ineos. Um, you know, that's a team really that's almost a better fit for him. And you kind of look at how he is as a rider – 
and his personality. He's kind of explosive. You know, he admits he has kind of some anger management issues. And I think um, in a team like Enios, that's kind of, you know, they have a sports psychologist on staff. They, they kind of give guys a little bit more room, I think. And, and, uh, and not, they're not so old school in terms of how they run things. And for him to transition out of BMC, which was a highly structured team, and they had basically a full-time time trial mechanic dedicated on BMC. They had a guy that just all he did was take care of Rowan Dennis's BMC time trial bikes. He would keep them in a special garage. He would bring them in just for the races. So he was pampered at BMC. So I can imagine for him going over to Byron, which is a little more loosey-goosey, a little more Italian style, it probably was a, a, a culture shock for him and probably for them as well. Uh, so now that he's into this Ineos machine, I think he probably fits in a lot better there. It's very structured for him. He knows what he has to do. Everything's taken care of. And he, he did reveal that he has kind of given up on this whole GC concept. Remember a couple of years ago, we did a few stories about how he was hoping to transition into a Grand Tour rider on the back of his Tom strong time trialing and kind of develop his climbing skills. He said he's basically given up on that. He, was, he said he was miserable doing that as well. That he's basically going to stick to what he does best, time trialing, go for one-week stage races that have a time trial, and help his teammates win Grand Tours. And that's where I think he's going to be pretty powerful at, at Ineos, actually. He'll, he'll fill a nice void there for that team, especially in a, if they have a team time trial on the Tour de France next year. He'll be a big asset. Yeah, I mean, I was blown away by his comments this latest round because he talked about how the situation at Bahrain Merida was so bad that it – that it was like putting pressure on his marriage. He said he didn't want to become another statistic of the pro bike ra- racer who got a divorce and said that, you know, whatever pressure it was, whatever strain the team and the re- team relationship was putting on him was then transferred to his home life. And he, like you said, he didn't like the person he had become. And um, what, whatever was going on was serious enough where he felt like it was impacting his life at home. And I mean, to, I read that and I'm like, wow, this this is serious stuff. You know, like, is this just is this like, oh, skin suit? I mean, if if it comes out that it's something like, oh, it's a skin suit or it's, a, you know, some piece of gear, I, you know, then then it, it sheds a whole new. I, I know it just brings a whole new thing into perspective. You're like, why, why, why is a you know fear of a skin suit impacting your personal life and your your home life that that way? Um, to me, when I read those comments, I was like, this must be something bigger than that. This must be like a big pay dispute or some type of they want your career to go in this direction and you don't want it to go in that direction. So I don't know. We're gonna have we're still gonna have to wait to see what comes out of the uh, Rowan Dennis mystery. Yeah, indeed. It's kind of a reflective of kind of the modern take on you know, athlete welfare and, and how uh, modern athletes are just treated differently than, than perhaps, you know, the old school way of 20, 30 years ago. Just like basically shut up and ride your bike. You, you know, your opinion doesn't matter unless you're the team captain. And I think we're obviously seeing this sport evolve kind of in positive ways over the last decade or so about just teams being more responsive to the to the needs of a rider beyond just their performance or just beyond their results so you know his big focus right now is is putting this behind him and really building up for the olympics you know remember and uh rio he's one of the favorites and he had some uh technical problems some gear problems his his, uh air bar snapped midway through the race so he he wants to kind of remedy that and, and put the olympics really at the center of his of his calendar, he's going to the Giro. Three time trials there should do him well. Not going to the Tour de France this year, 
and putting an end of season focus on the world. So, you know, he he's, seems like he's pretty happy just to get the you know get this behind him and put the put the uh, put bike racing back at the center of things. And and because uh, he's a he's a very talented rider and and uh, you know don't count him out. It was interesting too. What he did say is that the number one rival for him at the Olympics is Remco. Mm. And so so the Belgian journalists just oh, they were just dancing when he said that because. Yeah, that that was that was their that was their front page story right there. You know, that's catnip to a Belgian journalist by Belgian cycling that is journalist. That's catnip for a Belgian journalist. <laughs> well, they care about his problems. <laughs> a strong rider, interesting guy. Uh, we're going to be following him throughout the year. Uh, Hoodie, another strong rider and very interesting guy is the American gravel racer Colin Strickland. Uh, Colin won the Dirty Kansas this past year. We just had a story on the site about him being offered a place on EF Education First World Tour team for 2020 and him deciding to pass it up. Uh, I sat down with Colin a few weeks ago, and we are going to hear that interview. Now, this interview uh, is coming out. Actually, we have a big magazine feature coming out on Colin about uh, just some different topics that you're going to get in this interview. So I'd love for you to check that out. But we're going to let you get back to the race, Andy Hood, and we're going to check in with Colin Strickland. So we'll catch up with you a week from now, Andy. And as I say, Jed Under, good day, mate. <laughs> awesome. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Fred. Uh, welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here. I am sitting in a coffee shop slash bike shop called The Meteor uh, near downtown Austin, Texas. And I've come to Austin to spend a few days with Colin Strickland. Colin, as you may know, is the winner of the 2019 Dirty Kanza. Before that, he won a bunch of rounds of Red Hook. Um, I've known Colin for a few years now, and I've been really interested to follow his career because I feel like he is charting a new path for what it means to be a professional cyclist in America. We're going to get to all that later. Uh, but first, Colin, what can you tell me about the significance of where we are right now, this coffee shop, this bike shop, and the connection it has to you? Hello, everyone. We are in the seating area of the Meteor Austin, which is a lifestyle, uh, bicycle lifestyle cafe and coffee shop um, with good wine, good food, good espresso drinks, and some bike culture sprinkled in as well. And it's been a long time coming in that I've been representing the Meteor for two years. And finally, they have the location in Austin open, and we're all very happy about this as a cycling hub. Yeah, and this is like where the group rides start, right? It is, yes. We've, um, we've launched... Uh, Saturday, Sunday rides out in force, um, you know, with good routes and good coordination and first round, usually on the owner afterward, after we get back to the shop. Um, there's been a location in Little Rock for the last three years, um, and they are actually relocating to Bentonville, Arkansas. Uh, but this is the first one in Texas. So it feels great to be able to like represent an actual cool physical location. So something that's come out um, in the last few days of spending time with you and um cruising around Austin with you, uh, Colin, is just the importance of this Austin cycling community and, you know, the the role you play in it, but also the role that things like the Meteor and the Driveway Series and some of these, um, you know, year in, year out institutions where cyclists can meet, cyclists can race, 
and um, just sort of, you know, participate in the sport of cycling and what that does for a community. Um, how would you describe the Austin cycling community and what are the importance of, you know, some of these locations and races and places and how they influence it? I think the importance is really just bringing fellow cyclists together to meet at, you know, physical locations. Because otherwise, in my experience, especially as a full-time uh, rider and full-time training and racing, it's it can be a pretty lonely existence in the amount of time you spend out on the road logging long miles. So just having this kind of like a, a hub, a cultural hub and a meetup spot and a group ride spot really kind of plugs you back into the community and kind of the broader community of cyclists in an area. So it's for me, it's kind of essential to stay sane when, you know, you might be riding three of three of six days out alone, just out in the boonies. Um, it's really nice to throw in a group ride and get to chat with all your buddies and reconnect and kind of get an idea of what everyone else is up to. So yesterday we followed you out on one of your group rides or on one of your training rides out towards a town called Lockhart, south of town. Bunch of really cool gravel roads out there. And it sounds like this town and this area has also played a special part in your development as a cyclist. What can you say about the the dirt roads and the town of Lockhart? I would say it's an extremely peaceful place. It was... Uh, an original stop along the the eight uh, the nineteen hundreds Chisholm Trail cattle drive. So you can kind of just imagine like you know old cowpokes and you know caballeros driving a big herd of ma- big massive herd of of livestock through this vegetation and just you know it's it's a uh, it's really peaceful out there. There's very little traffic, which you know in Austin, Texas, Boomtown is is kind of the that's what I that's what I'm seeking is just less less uh, contact with automobiles. Um, the less the better for myself. So that's why I've been heading out uh, southeast of Austin almost exclusively. Um, I'll throw in some other routes out to the hill country here and there, but it's really the most peaceful place to ride. And you're talking about longevity of a career. It's nice to eliminate your contact with automobiles. Uh, but yeah, the town just has a lot of what I would consider historic Texas character, which is you know, a strong sense of place. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, very visible when you ride through it. It just feels like a, a kind of a timepiece. Also barbecue. Also barbecue. Yeah. Which I, you know, I'm, I think <laughs> personally, I would love to be vegetarian and I'm, I strive to be mostly, but every now and then there's just these, these little cultural phenomenons like this barbecue joint we went to yesterday. That is just, again, a timepiece, like stepping into a time machine could be, 80 years ago could be 100 years ago there's enough soot on the walls to you know suggest that yeah what was the place called again smitty's smitty's is was my awesome. favorite there's a lot of great barbecue in lockhart but smitty's would be the would be my choice so colin the whole reason we came out here was um to write about you and your community and like i said how you're charting this path forward for pro cyclists in america as a gravel racer as a guy who races crits does road you're sort of the swiss army knife uh, bike racer um let's take a step back though to dirty kansas this past year you won in dramatic fashion holding off the world tour guys and last night we were talking about it and you said you know on the eve or in the in the lead up to the race you actually had a pretty good amount of confidence um, in yourself going into that race. Um, tell me about that. Like, there's these world tour guys. There's these pro cyclists who race the Tour de France, coming to race Dirty Kansas, 
and you know you hadn't even participated in this race before why were you so confident i think it was a sense that the race was very similar to other events i had competed in and also very similar to the types of physical effort that i have simulated in training um, specifically in the you know in texas it's it's not too different terrain uh, when you factor in the heat and the wind and just perpetual rolling terrain um it's a it's a race where you know i knew you'd have to just stay on the pedals for you know eight to ten hours uh which is something you know i'm confident i can do uh based on my what my skill set is and my physiology um i would as opposed to you know some some punch more punchier style road races where you know if you get dropped from the group that's really it uh this one as long as you can in kansas as long as you can keep turning the pedals you're likely to stay with the front group. So, um, yeah, all those factors that had and having success in against adversity at, you know, the gravel worlds the last two years in a row, which is 150 miles, not quite the same, but, you know, similar type of effort moving into the, I don't know what we would call it. It's not quite ultra endurance, but it's a one big fucking day style of racing. Tell us about your uh, adversity at Gravel Worlds the year before, because to me that seemed like that was an aha moment where it was like, oh, my body has the ability to deal with some pretty extreme wattage output over pretty long periods of time that that spoke to your ability to do something like that at Dirty Kansas. Uh, 2018 at Gravel Worlds, I had a, a puncture around mile 22, 23. Uh, that took a lot of uh, remedy and ended up needing a tube. So it was a. By the time I got back on the road and got my first split, I think I was twelve minutes behind the the field. So that represented the next fifty miles, just going into TT mode and just chasing steady. And yeah, at the end of the day, I was able to catch the lead group over the next. You know, caught them around mile eighty, and then rolled into the 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 significant chase group of the day and then eventually rolled away from that with a few miles left so it just showed that i could put in a big effort early and you know over a seven hour day could rally and then race my bike later on so that based on the power numbers looking back it was just confidence inspiring because it's hard to really get those numbers unless something goes terribly wrong yeah, the, so well, the idea is that you're not you're trying not to do 300 watts for the first three hours of the race. What kind of numbers are we talking about? You're looking at your uh, power file after something like that. What are the you know the big juicy statistics that come out of an, an effort like that? It's all on my Strava. It can be reviewed, but if, if off the top of my head, the one that I was like, oh, that was pretty that could stack up against you know some world class riders. I think it was the doing I think three 315 watt average from hour one hour sorry hour two through hour four so three hours or so two and a half hours at over 300 while chasing and then recovering and you know ending the day with about 270 or 275 ouch that's that's some serious ouchage right there it's not these aren't massive spikes or anything it's just how much how much energy can your body pump through it in a given day you know processing fuel processing oxygen how if, how steady can your motor just generate the force for the pedals? So that's what I wanted to ask you about next. When you think about your um, your physical gifts, how you've trained your body, um, what is it about your system and your body 
that um, allows you to do what you do. What when you talk about the Colin Strickland engine, how would you describe it and what it allows you to do in these bike races? It's hard to pinpoint exactly because I've never considered myself particularly high VO2 max or particularly strong sprint. Um, so I, I would probably characterize it as a, a kind of a, a little bit of everything, but all kind of working in unison to kind of heighten the overall output. It's kind of, I don't know. I haven't had, I, I'm sure we could jump into the lab for about a couple of weeks and determine exactly what it is. But I, I just see it as like a cellular adaptation efficiency, um, you know, and, and lean muscle and ability to transfer fuel around it. I mean, to me, it seems like you're the ultimate diesel where it's like you can hit this, you know, really hard level and hold it for hours and hours and hours, do some surges in there. But, you know, you're talking about a 10, 12 hour race with Dirty Kanza. And I just think most people can't hold it at that that level for that long. Yeah, I think some people can. And I'm sure I'll see them very soon in these events, which is going to be exciting. Um, but there's certainly an aspect of just being able to kind of pin it up, you know, hit cruise control at a level that otherwise would feel unsustainable and just convince yourself, no, we're going to be okay. We can, we can keep pushing at this level and we kind of have to, we want, don't want the day to go to shit. So after you went dirty Kanza, um, you're on the cover of magazines. We did a podcast. Someone, I was not on the cover. Oh yeah. Team that's gets right. On the cover of magazines. Your team got on the cover. You had stories. We wrote about you on the site. You know, we were like, who is this Colin guy? I, I knew you because of your, Red Hook stuff. But um, how does your life change after that? Well, I wouldn't so much say that not, it not at all. changed. <laughs> um, I don't know. More, more, uh, more, more interviews, more videos to produce. Um, but yeah, I don't know. My life was pretty good before and now it's even better. So, so it's, it wasn't like, uh, you know, you won... Uh, Tour of Flanders, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're a uh, you're the biggest name in Belgium, or you win the Tour de France, and you're the biggest name in pro cycling. It was more like, you know, you're you're kind of the same guy. I think it felt like I got I was exposed to another, or I had ex- exposure to another group of cyclists. Because, uh, like, to be honest, I only cyclists have any idea who I am. If anybody does, you know, the the legend does not go beyond cycling community if there is if you could say characterize it as such so but i had a similar experience with you know some sustained success at red hook so that was a similar phenomenon of like people knowing your name and people seeing coverage of what you've done so it was a it was not exactly new i had experienced it from my days in red hook something similar of hey i know you you were the guy who won about this race this big race or a couple of big races so Similar. It's a similar experience, so it's not quite as striking the second time around as it is the first. Not to not to diminish it, but it is you know something I I'd say I'd experienced before. Right, and that's the that's the strange part to me. Not strange, but you know, listeners have heard me talk about the explosion in popularity of Dirty Kanza over the last year or so, and how our reports just on the who won Dirty Kanza generated way more interest than the Tour de France, for example. And so, you know, you talk about some of these races and the media exposure they get. And if you win, it's this transformative thing. And, you know, you won Dirty Kanza and um, there were some things that changed, but pretty much it's sort of like going back to Austin and being the same old Colin. 
And I just look not at the winning crits. Yeah. yeah. And I look at the crystal ball and think, well, maybe that's going to change someday. Maybe the winner of Dirty Kanza ends up something big ends up happening to them. Um, well, there was something big. There was something semi big that happened to you, right? Which is that uh, you start getting emails and phone calls from uh, EF Education first about uh, a future potential future in World Tour road racing. Yes, that was one thing that could have, you know, really rocketed it. Um, that could have been, you could consider a, you know, a big break for sure that came as a result. Um, the opportunity to race World Tour, which is, you know, most of us were would consider it out of reach, uh, especially at my age. So, um, but yeah, that, that didn't, it, as alluring as it was, it was still, it still constituted a significant gamble in terms of like everything, lifestyle and like professional career trajectory if you will and um you know absolutely no guarantees of success uh but just having a chance to get into the ring um at the world stage but again i decided i decided that wasn't that was not where i want to go with my life at this point really so yeah i guess that was i guess that was a, a an opportunity not taken let's drill into that so first of all What's your feeling and sentiment when these this outreach and this messaging first comes to you? Hey, this World Tour team saw what you did at Kanza, thinks that maybe that effort can be of value in a World Tour road race. How do you feel when that first when those, that outreach first happens? It was super exciting and like, you know, hugely flattering considering how much, you know, I've been watching classics for years and that's uh that would be, you know, the the area of this of professional road cycling that I feel like I would most like to, you know, jump into if there were one. And, um, yeah. And just to have that, you know, mention that, Oh, we think you could potentially do well in this, in this, uh, this realm was just like massively flattering. So, and just exciting. So yeah, I mean, that, that no doubt it, the first impression was just like, wow, that is fucking awesome. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> and then as, the conversation evolves. The reality of this situation becomes clear, which is that, you know, like you said, there's no guarantee you'd actually have success in these races. But also it sounds like there are sponsorship and financial elements that might make your life a little bit difficult. What were those uh, elements? Well, it's really just, the you know, the sacrificing of all this, this program that I've been steadily building over the last three years um, that kind of launched off the Red Hook success. And then have redirected towards American gravel focus, which is, as everyone knows, a extremely healthy market, if you will, or you know, subgenre of the sport of cycling in the U.S. especially. Um, and I have myself positioned in that really well. Um, so it would mean completely kind of shelving that, not only shelving it, but kind of scrapping it and scrapping all those relationships with brands that are all in behind me with gravel racing to jump you know jump on the e, the ef train and you know let them do all of the deal making let them hold all the contracts and just hope that i continue to prove myself valuable to them um moving forward and will and have to continue to prove myself valuable to them so with you know and really going taking it one year at a time where you know if you have a bad year then understandably they could just decide not to resign you and then you're back to square one um banging on the door of the sponsors that you had er kind of left to left for this shinier thing 
And to me, that's what one of the things that makes you such an interesting figure in American cycling right now, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, you're creating a new pathway forward for American pro cyclists based around individual sponsorships. So, for example, you have a deal with Red Bull. Um, the, you know, everyone knows what Red Bull is. They sponsor you. They help market you. They help promote you. Um, you have individual deals with Allied Bicycles. You know, these are things that these are deals that people might know, but like there's a lot of time and effort that goes into, you know, creating these relationships and signing these deals and creating a financial relationship that allows you to do what you do. And if you were to go to uh, World Tour Road Racing where the sponsorship market is like the sponsors are sponsoring the team, not the individual, you'd have to get you. You would have to get rid of the Red Hook or the uh, the Red Bull deal. You would have to get rid of the Allied deal. These are things. These are financial relationships that you've had to put a lot of work and effort into creating, and like they would be gone. And like you said, and there's no guarantee that after one year of top end road racing, you'd have any success. You'd be invited back on the team, and then you'd kind of be back at square one, banging on doors, saying, "Hey, sponsor X, I know that I." let go of you to try this thing out and maybe it didn't baby, work out. Baby, I want out. you back. <laughs> yeah, baby, I, I want, want you, you back. back so bad. I've just been thinking of you this whole year in the cold in Belgium. <laughs> totally. How warm it was back in back in Oklahoma and Kansas yeah. and California and I just I just want to come back. I just want to so, make it like it was. Well, I think some listeners or readers may have initially, initially thought like, what the heck is this guy doing? You know, this is such an unintuitive decision to make to say no to it. Um, the more and more I thought about it, it actually became clear that, you know, the logical thing to do was to keep on the path that you've done. And I talked to Vodders about this and he at some point agreed too. said, I get it. You know, this guy has a really good situation that he's created himself from scratch. And if you want to go to the world tour road model, um, that model is not friendly to individual sponsorships and entrepreneurism and some yeah. of these other elements. Yeah, you you would have a boss. <laughs> right, now, right now, I I am my own boss, which is massively valuable, depending on your personality. And you know, I it's it's really fun getting to set your own schedule and really getting to make all of the decisions. Coming down to shit, I enjoy is like the creative side of it. So. You know, what kind of stories are you going to tell? How are you going to frame it? What kind of kit are you going to wear? What kind of colors are you going to put on that kit? What are they going to be shaped like? You know, do you want to sell the kit? Do you want to produce the kit? Just all these fun little business endeavors that, you know, you might not be into. A lot of guys don't enjoy that kind of shit. But to me, it's kind of the entrepreneurial side is actually pretty fun and exciting. It's a whole nother realm of the sport that you don't think of when you think of a pro cyclist. They're just the guy that tries to get the top, you know, finish the race the fastest. There's another element to it. I think that, um, the, you know, since coming out here and spending time with you, I, I, I'm convinced now that I think that World Tour would have been a bad fit for you. And that is, Colin, you are a relentless tinkerer. We took a tour of your house. It is full of Colin projects, motorcycles that you have restored. Um, you have this house that you yourself have restored, putting up walls, building cabinets, installing electrical. Um, you have this giant uh, Spartan trailer that you're in the process of restoring. Um, not an Airstream, a Spartan. And when I think of some of the personality traits that really help these World Tour riders along, it's like, Go do your training, come back, sit down, legs up, 
don't do anything. And I just have a hard time envisioning you being that type of guy. Yeah, it, it's it sounds glamorous that you get to, you know, perform on that the big stage, but yeah, the rest of the time I think it I think if there's I think it could be kind of boring aside from the extremely exciting shit that goes down in a race. Um I don't know, a lot of logistics, a lot of transfers, ton of transfer, like nothing I've never experienced. Um Yeah, it's a lot of things that you don't think about as a as an observer uh that, you know, took a little while for me to kind of kind of marinate and let them sink in of like what is what would this life actually be like day to day and you know if you're if you're young and hungry and 22 and you see it as this is your this is what you really want to do and this is your big shot then you know if I was 25 I think I would have no questions jumped at it but you know I'm how long do I want to how long do I want to do that with my life um what do you want to do with your life really is the question and I'm, I'm just not sure that, you know, that's what I want to do with my life. So, Colin, in your time in American Cycling, you have raced as an elite Cat 1 road racer. You've done the fixed gear thing. And I wouldn't say rode the wave of fixed gear racing's popularity because um, I think it's still out there. Um, and then you transitioned into gravel. You seem to have made really wise decisions with the types of racing you want to do where there's energy, where there's creative thinking, and there's a lot of enthusiasm growth. and growth. Talk to me about those decisions. Why did you choose these different um, racing formats as opposed to going with the more traditional pathway of Cat 3, Cat 2, Cat 1, Domestic Pro? Um, why did you deviate? Well, the first, the first deviation I'd say was somewhat luck in that i got a call from chris reichert um to ride for the at at specialized to ride for their 2016 la red hook program so that was kind of the that was the catalyst for kind of the creative thinking and jumping off the jumping out of the mold off the kind of the the tracks um and kind of seeing what more is out there and what more you can do so that was that was kind of uh influence kind of exerted on me not one that i did myself but then that kind of that spawned just this this style of thinking of wait look at the landscape zoom out a bit you know socialize as much as possible talk to people you know embrace that side of the of cycling so that you can really keep in touch and keep your finger on the pulse of like why are people riding bikes how are they riding them where are they riding them what's inspiring them about bikes you know and yeah, I guess I guess another side note would be just looking at the the growth of adventure cycling in general, not racing, like the ultra romance, just bike touring, getting out into beautiful places. The stuff that the Radivist is documenting was just that's what was really, I mean, even more than gravel. That market has is probably larger than gravel. It's just less visible. So meeting it in the middle between road and adventure cycling lands you at you know endurance gravel racing which is a little bit of everything. So that seemed like it was just kind of a blending of all of these healthy areas of the sport um, where you could, it would attract people from every, virtually every different market of cycling, be it mountain biking or just bike camping folks who, you know, might also want to go out to Oregon trail gravel race and just camp out and do a hard course. 
Um, but yeah, it just seemed like just zooming out and really just analyzing the landscape and trying to predict where it's going to move into the future was, is what I would, that's how I have approached, you know, running a team and directing where my efforts are going to go. So what's next? Not just for you, but for American cycling. If you're this man who has his finger on the pulse and is always trying to think about where um, American cycling is going and you've had really good success of hitting fixed gear racing and hitting gravel and, you know, melding these interests that you have with the, with the media you consume and what you see going on in American cycling. I mean, where are we headed? I mean, I think that's, that's the big question that a lot of people have. That is a great question, Fred. The way I see it, I think we have a really healthy dynamic with gravel racing at present, which is going to continue to morph and grow for the next say, five to 10 years um, and just become a more established discipline with more more support and more rules and more structure. Um, as it's a little amorphous right now, you know, we've spoken about the whole the women's field aspect, the elite women where they're kind of riding with the men right now. So that'll be an interesting development um, that will take years to kind of sort out uh, what their role or what their race will look like moving forward as they grow their own, you know, legitimate field. Do we, do they race, do they have a separate start or do they just, is that women's gravel racing? Do they ride with, with the dudes and fight it out um, amongst themselves, amongst the dudes? So Pieces like that remain to be, you know, there's a lot of sort of settling out to do. Um, but then I have seen, you know, a, an interesting little view into subculture of cycling. As the last two years, I've gotten to go out to Miami for the Art Basel uh, massive international art ex- exhibit uh, weekend of early in December. And it's a great way to look into this little microcosm of roads, American road cycling. That is Miami where there's just these massive group rides with a hundred plus guys and some gals going so hard. Uh, not necessarily well, there. It's like a race ride, uh, but it's like three times a week. So what I see from my experience in Austin, one of the really the thing that has united the catalyzed this cohesive Austin cycling community is the driveway series, which most people are familiar with. But if you're not, it's a weekly Thursday night race with about four different individual races from, you know, beginner men, beginner women's up to elite men, elite women. And it takes place on a beautiful, but small enough scale for bikes, a racetrack right on the edge of town that you can ride your bike to. And it's every week and it brings the whole community of at least four to 600 people a week come out there, hang out together, race their face off and then do it again the next week. Um, so I see, while I can't promise that big crit events will continue to grow where you have to travel across the country, you get to race for half an hour or an hour. Again, that's a challenging model, but I think what could be really healthy and sh- moving forward is the local, strong weekly crit scene but this comes to you know a big part of it's having the venue which there aren't that many you know it's just not the same with a parking lot crit as when you have these just perfect racing spaces Um, so i think if the driveway series could be emulated in all of these road racing specific communities in miami it's just it's hard to find mountain like awesome you know epic mountain biking it's hard to find the, the gravel 
there's places like New York, similar situation where you have a huge population, but there's just no way to unite it, or there's currently no no venue for uniting it. Um, I think strong local crits could really be a bigger part of the future of U.S. racing and cycling, um, specifically modeled around the driveway model, because it's not only is it great for the riders, it is economically sound. Um, and it's, you know, it's turning a profit and everyone's happy to pay the money to race their bike and get the free beer because the experience is so good. So finding a way to emulate that in, in communities around the country that have the, the road racers, the road cyclist population and just giving them a place to play. Um, you mentioned it there. We are definitely in this growth transition phase with gravel, um, what do you want to see gravel grow into and what don't you want to see gravel grow into? I think the fun aspect of it at the moment is that it is in flux and it could grow in a, a variety of different ways. The one thing I would like to not personally like to see gravel not grow into is I don't want to see it become road racing on gravel. And you can kind of take that as you will, but... I think as we can all agree that r- road racing in the U.S. is like has pretty much failed as a you know forward-moving model, um, not only economically but just from a sense of fun, a sense of it just it just didn't that isn't the formula for success. So if we can maybe just invent any, let's just find a new way to to go about this discipline instead of just kind of transferring that that those rules onto gravel and like whatever it is about it you know i think the first like honestly the further it can be from road racing the better yeah i mean i think you taught you hit it there and 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 also your answer where you see cycling going with it you know it kind of comes back to community it comes back to venues it comes back to series it comes back to places like this coffee bike shop where people can hang out talk about bikes meet up go for a ride Um, And I think that element will always um, help drive American cycling forward. So, Colin, I really appreciate you spending time with us this morning and the last few days showing us around. Uh, Listeners, take note. We have a big story on Colin coming out in our March issue of Velo News, the gravel issue. So, Colin, we will let you get back to your life. Thanks for coming down, guys. (laughs) 